Well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Mark Tallman from KASB bringing you our biweekly edition of the Advocate Podcast, uh, joined, as always, by Leah Flyder and Scott Rothschild from our advocacy department. We've got a lot to talk about on the political front today, but again, we've got a special guest to start our conversation. I'm going to let Scott introduce him and get started. Yeah, we have a great guest. Uh, His name is Ryan Vincent, and he is the director of the uh, Kansas Housing Resources Corporation. And uh, you may ask why we're having someone from the Housing Resources (laughs) Corporation on a podcast about Kansas education. The housing agency is in charge of dispersing funds to help Kansas families who are financially struggling because of COVID-19 on their rent and other expenses, and we thought this would be a good program for educators to know about, so if they know families who could use some help. So, Ryan, welcome to the podcast, and please tell us about uh, the Kansas Emergency Rental Assistance Program that you administer. Welcome. Well, thanks so much, Scott and Mark and Leah. This this is a fabulous opportunity um, to just talk about the importance of home when home has never been more important than it is this very moment. Again, my name is Ryan Vincent. I'm executive director at Kansas Housing Resources Corporation. Sometimes we go by KHRC, sometimes by Kansas Housing. Um, But more importantly, I'm I'm the son of a math teacher. Um, I'm the husband of a music teacher. Wow. I'm the father of two public school children. I I know how important the education is to our families and our neighborhoods and our communities. Um, and I, I very much appreciate the work that school boards and administrators and teachers and educators do. And it is just absolutely key for the success of education that we have stable housing in our state. Um, similarly, it's, it's key for housing that we have good, strong schools. Um, that's always one of the big indicators of success in strong housing markets. So we work hand in hand together, and that's why I'm just pleased to be part of this. Well, uh, well, thank you, Ryan. I pr- we appreciate the, those are solid uh, thoughts. Uh, we, we think those things, too. And, and uh, you administer this Kansas Emergency Rental Assistance Program. I know a little bit about it, but why don't you let our, our listeners know what this program does and, and, and how, how folks can get in uh, contact with it? Absolutely. So we have administered a variety of housing programs in our office, what I would call traditional programs that range from emergency resources to down payment assistance and weatherization for many years. Uh, But with the pandemic came a huge surge in evictions and housing instability. And obviously we get why that's a problem at a statewide level, Um, but for educators, it's huge. Um, We've seen studies that show that stable, affordable housing can reduce the frequency of moves. And stable, affordable housing can provide support networks for families. And stable, affordable housing can reduce stress and it helps reduce health issues. Um, One of the biggest indicators of, uh, or predictors of chronic absenteeism at school is housing instability. Um, So it's key to your members and it's key to us at the state. and seeing the tide of evictions rise um, this last year um, during a time of pandemic was alarming, to say the least. Uh, we partnered with the State Recovery Office, with the Kelly administration, and with Congress to launch uh, what has become known as the Kansas Emergency Rental Assistance or CARA program. Uh, that program has gotten an enormous amount of resource for our small state. 
And part of that is because it's a nationwide program, but part of that is because there is an enormous amount of need out there. Um, we received approximately $150 million last January and another $150 million in March for a program that will be running through approximately September, 2025. Um, it's a fabulous resource. We've got um, the ability to provide not only rental assistance for up to 15 months for qualifying families, uh, but also utility assistance and internet uh, assistance, which we know is key. Um, you know, obviously keeping people stably housed and keeping them connected during this time of con continued pandemic um, is enormously important. To date, we have gotten approximately 27, or I'm sorry, $67 million out the door, um, which is hard to fathom that amount of money. Really? We have served approximately uh, 11,500 tenant households across the state. And that's in, in households of about 30,000 Kansans. Um, and, you know, you think about some of the, the populations of our mid-sized cities around the state, and we have had that many folks that have applied for and been assisted through CARA um, just in the last year and a half that have been facing eviction and housing instability. Um, so we're grateful to be able to have that resource for tenant families, as well as make their landlords whole uh, this last year and a half through this eviction moratorium period. Well, one, you know, and I, with your kind of some of your education, obvious connections, uh, something that we've been talking about uh, have, has been the impact of the pandemic on student achievement measures. We new state assessment data that came out this last year measuring kids a year ago, um, which looked at kind of their learning changes over uh, the deepest year of the pandemic, uh, showed a decline in performance in some areas. Our ATTC scores have also dropped many other uh, factors. Um, and of course, one of the things people are always interested in, well, you know, we, we can blame it on the pandemic. I don't know whether you from some of your studies can, can just talk a little bit about, so uh, of, of families facing these challenges, um, what are some of the ways that that could affect families and students uh, in, in their ability to learn or study or remain in a stable school environment? Anything like that you might want to kind of share from your observation? Uh, absolutely. So I, I'm going to actually give you two personal examples. Um, you know, we, we've got the data, we've got the studies, and those are important. But sometimes the stories, in my mind, are what really um, can can catch our attention and also our hearts. Um, I was a school lunch buddy volunteer at Meadows Elementary, which is a, a elementary school in Topeka Public Schools. Um, it was a fabulous experience, did it for, I think, 12 years. And I remember having one of my uh, lunch buddies that I met once a week for lunch. And I remember him sharing the story of how um, his family was having to move. And it was almost on a monthly basis. And I was hearing from his teachers and from the social worker at the school about the challenges that the student was having academically with his behavior, uh, with his just general um, willingness or ability to learn. And then at the same school, I heard that so many of the kids were living at the rescue mission uh, down the street and it's no small wonder that kids that are worried about where they're going to lay their head at night aren't going to be concentrating on school. And I don't blame them, and I get that, but we've got to have a solution to that problem. And it can't be on the schools solely. It's got to be um, at the state level. 
It's got to be through our housing partners, um, as well as the resources that we have at the federal government. This, the second example I may just give you real quick is that um, we actually received a success story, a note from one of our CARA clients. And it was a, a woman who lives in a small town in Kansas. And she wrote in and she said that she was so grateful for the CARA assistance because uh, this was during Christmas time last year. And her daughter was a senior in high school and she didn't realize how bad things were with her family. Her family was on the very cusp of eviction from their home. And because of our assistance through our program, we were able to keep the family stably housed, not only through the holidays, but this mother wrote in and she said how grateful she was that her kids could, her, her senior in high school could concentrate on applying for colleges and getting into a school and my hope and belief and faith is that, that that senior is now a freshman at one of our universities. And you think about the immediate benefit of keeping that family intact, but then you think of the long-term benefits of the education that that student is receiving and the change and the um, ability to have an impact on the future of our state down the road. So we are making long-term investments through these short-term um, assistance payments to these families. And for that, I'm very grateful. You know, Ryan and Scott and Mark, we were, um, the three of us from KASB were uh, monitoring a hearing yesterday, and um, the state commissioner of education was talking about how um, absences and, and those types of things are really a key predictor of student success. And I think he said as little as, as four missed days in a month of school really indicate problems and and um it struck me as you were talking about how just housing insecurity would certainly be a, a real contribution to that that you know missing school well absolutely and the, the university of michigan released a very uh, intriguing study here this was several years ago um that they did find the housing was the the key indicator of that chronic ab absenteeism at school mm -hmm. and Obviously, if kids aren't going to school, if you have that absentee problem, then you're not going to have long-term academic success. So, so Ryan, if I were a, a teacher or a principal or someone in a school building and I saw uh, or knew of a family that or for, through a student was having some problems, uh, how, would they, uh, how would they plug into this program? Great question. Uh, the first place to start um, would be to get get on our website if that's possible. Our website is kshousingcorp.org. And we've got a very user-friendly website that's got a page just on CARA, the Kansas Emergency Rental Assistance Program. Um, once you click on that page, you'll find uh, not only information about the uh, eligibility requirements and the application process, as well as the online application um, tool but you'll find information on community partners that we have around the state for those families that may have challenges um, maneuvering or navigating an internet-based system. Uh, we've got flyers that are available in not only English, but Spanish and a variety of languages. We've got um, digital tools to help um, schools, PTOs, um, school lunch programs get information out to their various stakeholders because one of the keys for the success of our program is making sure that folks are aware of it, that we have this resource, we're not gonna run out of money, we've got it through 2025, and we can make 
um, households whole so that they've got a fresh start going forward. Well, that sounds great, um, uh, and we'll we'll try to get some information out on that as well. Um, guys, any other questions or uh, – yeah, go ahead, Leah. Ryan, did you mention something about Internet access? Did I understand that as part of this program? That's correct. So we are able to offer up to $750 in Internet assistance as well. Um, so that can be separate from the rental assistance or utility assistance. And I should mention utility is defined very broadly. So we're even able uh, to handle mm -hmm. um, trash and water and anything mm -hmm. that kind of falls within that. So it's a wonderful resource to catch folks up um, to get them started again. Internet access tends to be an issue for students ac across the financial spectrum in Kansas. And, and even now with, you know, all of our schools back in person, kids still have to do online homework. And um, we find that's one of the biggest challenges that folks have other than, you know, kind of the COVID impacts, but that people, kids just don't have access to that online learning opportunity. So that's, that's a great thing to know about. And, and I may just add that we also are going to be launching a homeowner assistance fund or half program um, here in the next couple months. We're still waiting for approval from the state as well as Department of Treasury, but we're going to have resources very similar to CARA that will be available for homeowners that are facing delinquency, mortgage foreclosure. Uh, but it, it too will be able to provide that internet and utility assistance. Okay, very good. Any anything else you want to add, or Scott? Did you did you have a final question? No, I just uh, just sounds like a wonderful program and, uh, you know, well-funded and uh, for the next few years. So I think, uh, uh, I hope our education advocates who are listening to this uh, can, can uh, take down some information and, and get in touch with you, uh, Ryan. Well, thank you again so much for this opportunity. And I might, might just close with a reminder that we've had a housing problem in our state for as long as the state has existed. 30% um, of our housing is older than the 1960s in this state. Um, we have a variety of housing needs and recognizing that we're now closing out a statewide housing needs assessment, the first one that's been done in 30 years in our state. And we're identifying not only the challenges, but the resources and ideas and best practices. And we are wrapping up a roadshow this month around uh, every area of the state and plan on rolling out that study here shortly in time for the legislative session. Um, so I look forward to continuing engagement with KASB and your members so that we can continue this dialogue about the importance and ties between affordable, safe housing and education. Thanks so much. Well, on the note where I guess I've learned that antiquated housing is defined as being about as old as I am, uh, I don't think I've got anything else to uh, uh, to ask. We appreciate it, Ryan. Again, as we've said, you're welcome to listen uh, as we continue. We're going to start talking about some other legislative issues, but we certainly thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much. Have a good day. Running a school district is more work than most people realize. From leading a diverse staff to protecting the health and safety of employees and students, the work of an educational leader is never done. It can be overwhelming to find solutions to the challenges facing a district, but you don't have to lead your schools alone. Kansas Board Solutions, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Kansas Association of School Boards, is here to help you find the solutions you need to support your students and staff effectively and efficiently. 
With a full suite of technology and insurance solutions, KBS offers an array of services to benefit your school district. We know districts continue to face a wide range of challenges as student needs change, staffing requirements evolve, district facilities age, and much more. As a wholly owned subsidiary of KASB, KBS fulfills its mission by keeping money in local schools instead of spending it on huge year-end bonuses or high-flying corporate retreats. All of this helps us achieve our goal of helping you build and run the best schools in the nation. With KBS, you are truly getting a partner in education that serves you with a purpose. Wondering what KBS offers and how you might use it? The answer is simple. If you're in need of a software, insurance, or resources solution, KBS should be your first call. Learn more at www.ksb.org backslash solutions. All right. Well, uh, uh, Scott and Leah, uh, where do we want to move next? I, I suppose <laughs> the big issue was uh, the last two days, and we're recording this on uh, Thursday... December 2nd. Thursday, December 2nd. We closed out two very long days of the Special Committee on Education. Um, and uh, <coughs> where do we want to start? Two days, 16 hours. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, more than yeah. two dozen speakers. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. It was, Zero uh, lunch for the starving lobbyists. <laughs> Meanwhile, the legislators were noshing on all kinds of free snacks. <laughs> no one's bitter about that. <laughs> Apparently not. We, we should say the legislators did have to wait pretty late for lunch. They did, uh, yeah. So this was, this was not a, you know, hour and a half, leisurely two-hour lunch. It was... Around one thirty or two. Okay, you got fifteen minutes <laughs> to go up. get your box lunch, but uh, but when they had it, it looked very good. Well, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, I'll I'll start, and and then maybe we can each maybe take a piece of what struck us. Uh, you know, we've said all along that a key part of this, and maybe just back up a little We'd bit. Probably better uh, summarize uh, for so folks what an, happened. An interim committee uh, is when legislative leadership appoints a special group to study a topic between legislative sessions, usually composed of both House and Senators, usually, and in this case, was composed of pretty much members and leadership from the standing education committees in the House and Senate. This group had a, a, a long list of topics. They added a lot of topics to it. Kind of unusually, they're only meeting two days. Somewhat unusually, they didn't really write a report, but they put, they. I guess you could say they collected a great deal of information, and it's pretty clear what topics. Uh, it, it provides, I think, a very real guide to things that the legislature is going to start looking at in a little over a month when they come together. You know, so I'll begin, I guess, with, with my take from the, the, the very first day, the, the first hour, Really, there was little discussion, but it was a presentation on the constitutional structure of K-12 education, sort of who's responsible for what, who's assigned what. We, we can talk about that if you like, but where you really got into, I think, the, the meat of the debate was over the question of achievement and funding. Um, and so while other topics came back, one of the major reasons or justifications for this committee was to look at changes in student achievement um, uh, since the Gannon decision was realized, an agreement was reached, and the legislature started adding more more funding. Um, and so to, to quickly try to scope out, I guess, the, the point of debate over this, um, some legislators, some organizations, Kansas Policy Institute uh, was, was invited to testify on this, made the argument that we have seen, well, number one, that the primary way to look at student achievement is state test scores. 
the, the argument being uh, by those who made it, A, that's what the court looked at when it was available. B, it is a, an ongoing year-to-year -year objective. Every district takes the same uh, way of looking at uh, performance. And essentially, um, our state assessment data uh, has been declining or declined, leveled off, and then declined since new tests were put in place in 2015. Um, and, and couple that with uh, the uh, 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 argument, I guess you could say, that about a billion dollars is being added to school funding under the Gannon plan. Why aren't we seeing results? So a brief counter uh, to at least part of that, <laughs> that that I will make is to simply say um, it is important to realize when we start looking at achievement data going back to 2015, we're starting at a place when school funding was really still falling behind inflation after rounds of cuts that began in 2009. The new Gannon money really did not start flowing into districts until 2018, meaning there were really only two years of data before the COVID pandemic, which has had an impact by virtually every measure on every sector, other states, public and private. And while it is true that total general operating funding support is is going up probably about a billion dollars in the end. A, that does not adjust for inflation, and B, it's a six-year phase-in. So looking at that 2019 data only had the first two years of a six-year installment plan. So has student achievement by that measure been declining? Yes, but I think you have to be careful of how you line it up with funding, and, and as we discussed a little bit in committee, a lot of it depends what years do you start and what do you count, and do you believe that there's a lag? I mean, I, I, we found evidence there's kind of a lag. It was certainly when, when funding cuts began, there was an immediate drop in state assessment scores, for example, ACT scores, uh, but it did come. Uh, and so, but but the bottom line is simply that many legislators and a major theme of this is that schools are getting more funding. We're not yet seeing results, and their argument is, okay, COVID, yes, that's a reality, but we saw this decline starting before COVID. Let's review for folks, Mark. You mentioned that that you were invited to testify, and you mentioned that another institute was invited. But let's kind of maybe review for folks that this was really. A kind of an invitation-only um, kind of event, sure. and that yeah. the list of what we might call education advocates was pretty short. Uh, as is as is not uncommon in in interim committees. It's really up to the leadership. Uh, and this was committee was chaired by Representative Christy Williams, uh, who is the chair of the K twelve Budget Committee, Vice Chair Molly Baumgartner, Chair of the Senate Education Committee. Ranking Democrat, by the way, was uh, Valdinia Wynn, representative, who is also a member of the Kansas City Board of Education. But uh, yeah, they they set the agenda, the topics, and they invited people. Uh, and let's so, make let's make it clear that the Republicans set the agenda. Correct. I don't yes. think Representative Wynn would would agree that she. Correct. Correct. Helps and, set the and that was one of the things noted <laughs> is that the minority party was was not was not part of setting the agenda. And, Again, that's, uh, that, that's the prerogative of leadership. But yes, most, so it was not, it was not like if you want to come talk about this, right. you may do so. I was invited to talk on a couple of different areas, not on this topic. Kansas State Department of Education was probably, and so the Legislative Research Department, their staff, and 
the State Department of Education were the major speakers yeah, on different right. topics, but not everyone was allowed to speak on every topic. So, so, so that I guess the the that the funding issue to me was probably a dominant uh, discussion point of the of the first day. Well, um, if I could just sure. add one thing, <laughs> I mean, I think you summarized really well what the uh, uh, the Republican legislators' argument is that. Uh, you're getting all this new funding. We're not seeing test results. And I think uh, what people uh, like us and KSDE and, and others will say, it, it's probably better to look at more than just the test results uh, to see uh, how we're doing. Uh, it's also important to take into account, of course, the COVID pandemic, uh, which has affected schools across the nation. So uh, I, I think there was uh, at least an attempt by KSDE and others to say our graduation rates are going up, our post-secondary uh, rates are going up, so we're doing something right there. Uh, we had some testimony from uh, officials with school districts that talked about, okay, here's a kid that may have scored yeah. in, a, in a lower level. That was pretty compelling. Yeah, I mean, here's a kid who scored in a lower level, so yeah, on paper, that's not good. In reality, where that kid was a year earlier to where they are now, that's really good. So I, I, I think, you know, uh, we, uh, not, not to belabor the point, but I think what we were trying to get across is that there is a more nuanced way to look at student success than state assessments or uh, NAEP scores. Yeah, I think one of the examples that someone gave was, you know, a student who had a pretty low test grade for the state assessment, but now they're thriving as a freshman right. in college, right? Because, right. you know, school officials noticed that that low score and they said, ah, obviously we need to do some things to help the student out and they ultimately succeeded. So one of, I think, a, a, a takeaway in our view from this is, and you know, you've probably heard this before if you've listened to our podcast, it's just why it's so critically important for school leaders to, to understand the dynamics of what's happening in their district what's happening to their students, how are they addressing the needs, what additional uh, data, like you're talking about, is available, and be communicating that to your legislators. You may not get a formal chance. In this case, the committee uh, did provide that uh, school leaders from Wichita, Kansas City, Kansas, and Atchison were able to make these presentations. They were the only ones at this time. But you always have the opportunity to talk to your local legislators, to prepare this information, to to go if you're delegate, you know, some some people in it with more than one legislator in their county will have delegation meetings where they'll take information. All of this can be shared, and we would encourage you to do that. Uh, one thing that I think has been a bit of a, a a point of contention, in a way we might say, is that uh, while while the courts in the Gannon and other cases were primarily looking at test scores they did make clear that the standard that schools should be judged by is funding to meet the rose capacities which is a broader uh, measure than simply test scores but because you know i like to give due deference to all sides um, <laughs> many of those uh, are not necessarily easily managed in a standardized way and so when the court was looking at the rose standards it was primarily looking at at, at, at assessments uh, ACT scores, but I think the court did also talk about things like graduation rates. Again, what makes this complicated is if the if the question is 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 money making a difference. Um, well, as Scott said, we've got some good news in terms of some metrics going up, but 
those were starting to go up when we were facing funding cuts as well. So it's complicated and probably the best thing to do is to try to tell the most, the most complete, uh, give the most complete information uh, that you can. Uh, I may make, just kind of looking at, at day two, there's one or two other things I'll mention, let you guys comment, and then we'll go to a whole different set of topics that were part of the second day yesterday. One thing I was asked to comment on was, um, I don't know how many Animal House uh, fans there are of the, of the fine film. You might remember the phrase, a little-known codicil in the Faber College Constitution. Well, there's a perhaps little-known... I thought known, you were going to say knowledge is no, good. No, well, that's always another one to go back to. Our, our defining moment, knowledge is good. Uh, there is... Uh, I, I, I don't know well how well-known it is, but there is a long-standing requirement as part of the school district budget law the districts are to boards uh, and, and uh, through whatever process they do are to conduct a needs assessment of every school building. And that law was amended this year to specifically say boards are to use that information to um, uh, allocate their dollars to achieve those same road Basically standards. Basically to build your budget. But to, yeah, <laughs> use that to build your budget so you can point to, we added a math teacher to deal with this. We put in a, a summer school program in this building to meet these particular needs. Which, if you think about it, is really a great way to talk about what you're doing. It is a little more work. It is an extra step. And when the Kansas Policy Institute apparently sought information on what districts had done, many districts apparently did not have documentation of this step, although they may well have done this in an informal way. There is a form available uh, that the State Department of Education makes available that you can use for this assessment. So I'm going to say, as I said before, this is the law to do something you're going to be asked about it, and more than likely, uh, it, it, we're going to see legislation in this area. I'm simply going to argue that this actually is probably a very good budgeting step. If you're doing it, document it. If you're not doing it, start doing it and documenting document. it. And, and again, because we know many districts will really begin talking about their budget process soon, new board members coming on, what a great way to help your new board members understand what's going on in the district than to have a process where you do this needs assessment. And again, there is a, a free uh, format that you can use available through the, through the State Department. And then the final thing I'll kind of mention from uh, the first day to be aware of, because you're going to be getting information, is the legislative post-audit, kind of the investigating arm of the legislature, uh, it, it has been charged with doing a study of remedial courses in college, mm -hmm. now usually called developmental courses, based on the concern that too many high school graduates who go on to college have to take remedial courses. Uh, th this is only beginning, um, but uh, we learned, and then I just received an email this afternoon uh, inviting some feedback from us, but I believe they're going to send a survey to a, uh, every school district. I, you guys helped me remember what it was asking for basically just kind of a survey on why you, why school leaders believe that, what are the issues in developmental education? Why do kids need it? What are some of those reasons? Then they're going to do the same thing at the post-secondary level. One thing that we note is that um, the, the data seems to indicate many students, most students who need remedial courses are probably those that did not take a college 
preparatory curriculum, and taking college prep courses is not, at least currently, required for high school graduation. So, So the simple answer is, big reason students may need remedial courses is they did not choose courses to prepare themselves uh, for college in high school. As again, may still beg the question of whether whether that should be required. Part of that presentation also come from, came from the State Board of Regents. Mm-hmm. They noted that the percent of, of entering Kansas graduates taking remedial courses actually been dropping. It's a little complicated because they have also made some changes in how higher education deals with remedial courses. But the, the, I think the thing that will stick in some legislators' minds is an estimated cost of about $10 million a year to provide these developmental courses. And last year, you may remember, if you follow this, there was a bill to basically charge back yeah. those costs to the school district where the child graduated from. So the, given, given this audit, given these issues, you certainly should be aware of that. And that, I think, ties into your own district's kind of strategy of preparing kids. So, guys, any other comments from day one before we talk a little bit about day two? No, I think, uh, yeah, I think we ought to get to day two. (laughs) All right. Let's move right on then. Uh The world of education becomes more fast-paced every single day. From new legislative committees focused on education to breaking news to ever-changing ideas on effective leadership, the opportunity to learn and grow never goes away. KSB knows how hard it can be to stay on top of all the information in front of us. Understanding that challenge, we're excited to announce the launch of two new podcasts, The Advocate and CasbyCast. The Advocate brings you the latest news in the world of politics and education policy from our in-house experts Mark Tallman, Leah Flyter, and Scott Rothschild. With bi-weekly shows throughout the year, you will never miss what is happening in Topeka, D.C., or anywhere else political news is being committed. CasbyCast is our new weekly podcast held by John Heim and the executive leadership team of KSB. The group will cover all things education and sprinkle in a heavy dose of humor to get your Tuesdays started right. The good news is you're already listening to one of our new shows. If you enjoy the content and want to add another podcast to your repertoire, subscribe to KSB Live Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, well, day two uh, began with uh, about a two-hour presentation from those school leaders, then an hour behind schedule already, uh, we moved into the the general topic of, and I'm just going to read this from the agenda, is the application of critical race theory finding its way into the classroom? So that really kicked off with um, State Board Member Ann Ma talking to the committee about critical race theory, what it really is. It's It's a legal theory that talks about how racism informs the legal system in our country. But she, she said, you know, it's being used to sort of tar and feather anything that you don't like that's going on in your public school. People tend to call it CRT. And there was quite a bit of back and forth between her and some of the members of the committee about, well, my child was, was uh, shown this, uh, this gender identity quiz. And she's like, okay, well, that was about sex. That wasn't CRT. Or, you know, there was this uh, objectionable book on a, on a bookshelf. Well, okay, that's a curricular issue. That's not CRT. And there was... Um, there was some very spirited back and forth about that. I think they uh, had to agree to disagree on some things. I, I think most of the members of the committee do not agree that CRT is not being taught in classrooms. They uh, they uh, persisted in lines of questioning. It's clear that a lot of the efforts that uh, schools are doing, and, and Mrs. Ma talked about this, that 
diversity, equity, and, and inclusion programming is not the same as CRT, but uh, I think there were members who were not convinced of that. Scott, do you want to add anything to that? Well, and, and you know, we talked earlier about how the committee was set up and, and, the, and, and the, the speakers who were, who were invited. And I, to be honest, I thought this was the most imbalanced part of the, yeah. of the two-day meeting. Ann Ma uh, was there to talk about what's in the history standards and from the State Board of Education's point of view. But then there were like three or four or five people who were invited to just, uh, you know, uh, blast CRT, blast specific school districts. Uh, there was no uh, opportunity for those school districts to respond. Uh, so, I mean, to me, yes, CRT is, is a huge issue. Uh, I, I think it became more uh, of a venting uh, than really uh, uh, casting any light on what is actually going on. Uh, you know, I, I, I just don't think it's, it's fair to uh, invite people to, to blast uh, certain specific school districts without uh, getting a response. But, you know, that's, uh, like has been said earlier, it's a prerogative of the chair to invite people. But, uh, you know, I, I, it, it, was not a, it was not a well-rounded discussion <laughs> of the issue, I don't think. So I think anyone who's listening uh, probably knows how controversial this has been, and, and many of you may have had this as an issue in your own district. Um, it, you know, it's very clear that there are people who are passionately concerned about CRT. Maybe we should say CRT influence uh, mm -hmm. is what they would say. Uh, at the same time, there are districts that are using programs which are doing things which causes people to be concerned. They are CRT influence at, at minimum. And so uh, I guess, as always, this becomes a question in your district to, once again, kind of understand what's happening there, uh, as is typically, I think, been the case nationally. Um, the, many of the people who, who objected to critical race theory we're quick to say they are not saying that there aren't problems of racism, there aren't problems in history, that we shouldn't study them. Their objection is about kind of this particular theory, and again, which did move into some other areas. It really came back to a larger discussion, I think, of parental involvement, parental rights, parental concerns that touched into several areas. I was asked to speak in part about the National School Boards Association letter um, that that was certainly widely interpreted as kind of a blanket attack on parents for, for protesting. Um, this also raised issues of uh, um, uh, survey student surveys on yes. issues, uh, mental health questions, some of these things. So again, I, I just think it it was a it, it it underscored, as we all know, I think, there are deep concerns about some of the things happening on our public schools. It was not presented in a way to kind of let all sides talk about it. Presumably, there may be that chance in the legislature should there be specific bills which we don't have. But I think it, it also, I think a key debate will be, so who will address this problem? And, and several members of the, of the committee, you know, really said, okay, uh, maybe, maybe I agree with your concerns, but have you talked to your local board about this? Yeah. And I think what we've heard is that in some cases when parents complained about materials, they were removed. 
Other cases, maybe they weren't. But but that that I think is going to be a major thing for the legislature to look at. And we've got new board members across the state that will be taking office this January who may have some of these same concerns and looking mm-hmm. at these. So the question is, you know, where should these issues be resolved? When or if the the state should attempt to regulate some of these materials or regulate how you interact with parents, how you listen to parents. Um, I think many legislators just feel fair or not um, <laughs> that 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 some school boards or some school administrators aren't listening enough. W- whether that is simply because they're not getting the answer they want or whatever that perception is, I would simply offer that. Moment of self-reflection is always good. You know, to what extent are we are we demonstrating that we want to listen to these concerns, um, still having to resolve them? Uh, I, I, at one one kind of final point before we kind of wrap up the last of the day. There was a presentation uh, from an individual who who cited a an actual university class based study about the impact of masks on on student learning. Um, and, and which really found, I, I think maybe to some people's surprise, didn't really find any impact because that's long been a concern. Well, students can't hear. They lose facial. And, mm-hmm. and this study seemed to say that, that they had not found major detrimental effect to that. Some legislators continue to talk about what they thought were problems. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, but again, that, that, was, that was, I guess, some independent research that was shared uh, at that point. Um, and then probably the last thing uh, we might mention is uh, the committee received a briefing on kind of general issues around enrollment trends. Mm-hmm. Enrollment is down. Uh, we, we would point to COVID. That, that's the most logical change. But uh, we have, after really two decades or more of enrollment growth, that, that has not been the case the last two years. Homeschooling trends, there's a suggestion that those numbers are up, but because we don't have to report those numbers, we don't really know. Well, not for we. When you say we don't have to report. We, people, uh, people, yeah, make, people operating homeschool. There you go. Or as children as being homeschooled. Correct. I don't have people, a homeschool. So right, you're right correct. I, I would, um, But I guess the point would be, if I did wish to operate a homeschool, yes, you, didn't have, you wouldn't have to report I, I would not have to report uh, the, the numbers of the students or anything like that. Um, and discussions about school, school choice issues, private school funding, uh, all, all that sort of general issue of if you are dissatisfied with the education you're getting in public school, what alternatives, if any, do you have? That is a critical thing they're, they're likely to look at. One of those alternatives of virtual education, also some discussion there. But the wrap-up was around the question, and I'm going to just read it, if the legislature and state board join together to accomplish a common goal to improve student achievement, what would that one goal be? Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of funny. Like I, I, I thought it was uh, kind of a roller coaster of a, two days of a meeting, uh, ups and downs, and then uh, at the end of the meeting, they kind of uh, threw out a bunch of ideas, uh, and they all kind of, uh, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, uh, sort of landed on this idea. It may have been Senator Erickson who first brought it up. I'm not sure, uh, but the idea was to uh, uh, let's all agree. At least what we should do is try to get third graders uh, on grade level reading by the end of third grade. And uh, everyone said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I think they probably could have come up with that 
without <laughs> without the sixteen hours without the sixteen hours. But that's uh, another discussion for another day. But uh, yeah, but uh, so so that's where they uh, they kind of landed, and sort of the meeting ended with the chair uh, Christy Williams saying, when the session starts uh, January, uh, we'll try to uh, get a roundtable discussion with the state board. Uh, not sure how the state board is feeling about that at this time. Uh, but uh, talk about third grade uh, reading levels because, you know, obviously there's a ton of research out there that says, you know, kids need to know how to read uh, at grade level at third grade to be able to, to, yeah, that's to a, succeed. that's a critical time. Right. Yeah. Learn to read so you can read to learn. There I you guess. go. And, yeah. and the other, the other I read issue. I that somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, the other thing and, and the reason some people suggested uh, from the committee this may be a good place to start is one area where there has been a lot of agree, agreement has been over the issue of dyslexia. Yes. Uh, a lot of legislative concerns, state board concern. The state board is using federal COVID uh, aid to uh, uh, really kind of ramp up help in teaching kids to read and providing better training to teachers. And so uh, uh, while, while it is broader than just dyslexia because that's tied to reading issues, I think there was a feeling that's where there may be some common ground. I'm going to mention a couple of legislative meetings coming up, and then I think we may jump back to... Uh, to the special session, and uh, then also talk a little bit about the federal law. But Scott, can I just add one sure, thing? Absolutely. Uh, at the end of the meeting, the the the, uh, the Democrats did say that they were going to put together sort of a minority report, which may come out in the next couple of weeks uh, in response and reaction to uh, these uh, two days of committee meetings. Yeah, and again, what's a little unusual is typically a committee produces a majority report, right? right. Uh, and that's <laughs> and in this case, uh, again, at the time they had, it was really more about, I guess, collecting information, which will be in the report that was shared. But the there was not a, at least that we saw, an attempt to come up with a specific set of, re there's no recommendation on what to do about CRT or recommendation right. to do about, that's what you might typically get out of an interim committee. Uh, but I think we all know these issues will be picked up. Just looking ahead a little bit, uh, next next week uh, there is uh, going to be a, a meeting of some groups within the Mental Health Modernization uh, Committee. We're kind of following that because of its intersection with school-based mental health. Uh, a meeting next Thursday, I believe, of the Joint Committee on Pensions, Investments, and Benefits. That's really the CAPERS Oversight mm -hmm. Committee, uh, and they, they usually have an annual meeting to kind of say, how did our investments do, and, and some of those things. And we are hearing some kind of rumors of interest and in maybe going back to some of those working after retirement issues because yeah. of the, the shortage, uh, staff shortage issues. Um, and then the following week, uh, the 14th and 15th, the State Board of Education is meeting. One of the things that they will be doing is getting a report uh, on from uh, kind of an interim report from the Graduation Requirements Task Force. Uh, also on the 15th, the legis that Legislative Committee on Dyslexia, or Task Force, will be having kind of its annual follow-up report. Uh, yet another meeting of the Special Committee on <laughs> Mental Health uh, on the 15th and 16th. The 16th is a meeting of Legislative Post Audit we always follow because they're kind of usually looking at education issues in some way. Don't forget, by the way, that on the 16th at 5.30 in the evening is the virtual KASB Delegate Assembly to finalize our legislative positions. We, we hope you all receive those. If you haven't or have questions, please contact any of us. And then the last thing scheduled now before the start of the session, 
December 20th and 21st. If you uh, get your Christmas shopping done, because the Legislative Budget Committee will be will be meeting to kind of do its final interim look at budget issues, state revenue, uh, and make any re any recommendations that, that they might make uh, to go to the Budget Writing Committee. So that that's what we kind of see coming up that may touch on education. While I was uh, preparing a Thanksgiving <laughs> feast for my family, you two guys watched uh, an unusual special session of the legislature. What can you tell us about that? Well, it was very unusual. It was... Um Mercifully, it was only one day, but it was a, a, a special session devoted to addressing what uh, I think the, to the title was something along the lines of federal COVID mandates and government overreach. There was, there's, uh, was a lot of concern about the impact of um, vaccination requirements uh, handed down from the Biden administration, and um, that was kind of the impetus that, that prompted this special session, although shortly before that special session started, that OSHA requirement for some vaccine mandates uh, was, was blocked. So, um, Scott, you want to talk a little bit about what we saw? Well, they, they, uh, they met for one day. They passed one bill. Uh, it got signed into law, I think, that night or maybe day. the next the morning. The next morning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, without any fanfare from the governor. And, uh, yeah, basically uh, it says... Uh, it, it widens exemptions to opt out of getting a COVID-19 vaccination mm -hmm. uh, if your employer uh, should require it. And uh, it sets up uh, a process by which if you feel you've been improperly uh, uh, dealt with by your employer over this issue, uh, you can uh, file a claim and, and the employer can be fined. Uh, like you said, uh, the, uh, the requirements have been blocked on the on the uh, on the in the judicial level and uh, so you know we're going to be fighting over this I guess uh, forever well and I think as, as some people were trying to, to point out this is something that's ultimately going to be decided by the courts it's not something that really is going to effectively be dealt with at the state level and in a, a state like Kansas where it's called a right to work state some people say it's a right to work for less money you don't have a union protecting type of thing so if your employer wants to fire you because you wouldn't get a vaccination or because you know Scott's wearing a green shirt today that is their prerogative in Kansas and and the legislature passing something that says you can't fire people for not getting a vaccine is not really going to have the effect that I think people thought it was. But it certainly made people, uh, made those uh, masses of people who showed up very, I think, very happy. They felt like the legislature was listening to them. And um, so I think it was an exercise, let's put it that way. Mike, just a little footnote here, uh, and you guys can, can help me make sure I'm right on our interpretation. Uh, much of this is focused on uh, President Biden's uh, essentially order through OSHA yes. that large employers require vaccination or COVID testing. That's, that's really what set this off. However, in Kansas, um, school districts are not covered by COVID. That's right. And so by OSHA, by, which by, is thank the you. <laughs> Occupational Safety and Health thank Administration. You. And, uh, yes. And so as a result, um, we are not aware of any districts which are attempting uh, to provide uh, this mandate. We haven't really been involved in this. But as I understand it, if the 
if this law is ultimately upheld, uh, you would not be able to uh, make this requirement without having these rather extensive exemption uh, yes. policies. Uh, and, 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 and that's kind of the way it was approached, I guess, in the end. Um, I think, again, there's still some debate over, well, do these really widen? Uh, you know, there right. already are, mm -hmm. are exemptions. Yeah. Well, and law, it's so. also causing some, some legal friction amongst, with our uh, universities, which have yeah. uh, federal contracts. And now the attorney general is telling those universities, no, don't, don't pay attention to the federal law. Pay attention to the new state law. So right. uh, that'll be another thing to hash out in court. So on, uh, on the topic of, of federal law, federal requirements, uh, uh, I guess I'll start with Leah, our usual federal expert. Um, we want to talk a little bit, what, what do we know, if anything, about the recent, somewhat recently passed federal right. infrastructure law? So the infrastructure bill was signed a couple of weeks ago by President Biden. It's, it was about $1.5 trillion overall, and it does contain several billion dollars to help K-12 schools. There's about $65 billion in there to expand broadband access. That's a nice addition on top of some other recent efforts by the federal government to kind of fix that homework gap that we, we keep talking about, with, and we actually talked about it a little bit uh, with our guests today about kids not having uh, internet access. There's about $200 million to eliminate uh, lead contamination in schools. So I know many of our schools are older, and you might have those issues in your buildings with, with some of your pipes, and so that's some funding that will be available there. And about $5 billion for clean, ener clean energy school buses, and I'm not clear about you know, how, how much Kansas has in that market, but definitely some, um, some interest there. And then, of course, we're also following the uh, Build Back Better budget reconciliation that is slogging its way through Congress. That also has some K-12 money in it. Um, there's about $400 billion in there for universal pre-K and child care. Another $300 million for emergency connectivity fund for broadband. That's another fund for broadband access. And some money for teacher recruitment and retention. And so um, these these uh, these bills are slogging their way. The, the, in, the, the infrastructure bill was signed into law. The reconciliation bill is, is taking longer. It passed the House and now is kind of held up in the Senate. As usual, these things do not move very quickly. And of course, Congress is also looking at the uh, government shutdown deadline and, and funding the government through the next few months. So we'll be keeping tabs on that and we'll keep you up to date as we know more. Okay. Uh, I think that kind of wraps up our notes for today. Uh, any, any other thing we have forgotten, colleagues? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. It's been an eventful couple of days. It uh, has been. It, it has. I, I believe our schedule is that we will record another podcast before Christmas. Yes. Uh, uh, around the 16th would be our typical schedule, 17th to post. Um, we may not anticipate quite as much maybe breaking news as we had coming out of just the interim committee. But that may be a good opportunity to kind of preview in, in a little more detail things that might be coming up in the legislative session, other things we know about. We may be in the middle of a federal government shutdown. Who knows uh, by that time? But uh, as always, we would welcome uh, you to um, uh, send us any questions, uh, if you have any, uh, both individually or if it's something you, that we can address uh, on our program, we would be delighted to do that. Um, 
there's nothing else, guys. I think we will wrap up thanking Alec Madrigal again for his work putting this together, and we'll be talking to you soon.